0: Hello and welcome to the Faithful Forebears. Episode 11, Louis the Ninth. Welcome back. So most of the figures we've looked at so far have been priests or monks or nuns. They've all been people who have their work directly related to the church. Well, I think now would be a good time to look at a non-clerical Christian figure. So this episode, we're going to look at the life of Louis IX of France, better known as Saint Louis. Louis is a pretty fascinating figure. He is one of the only European monarchs ever to be officially sainted. And at least in my opinion, he certainly deserves it. Louis may be the best the Middle Ages had to offer as far as kings are concerned. I also think he's actually in the running for one of the best kings of all time. And he certainly was not perfect, as we will discover. But he was a king who was noble, humble, pious, and just. He's the kind of leader you'd probably be happy to follow. So Louis IX was born in 1214 not long after St. Francis had gone to Rome and been granted permission to start his order of the Frater's Minor. Louis's father was the heir to the French throne, and his mother was a Spanish princess named Blanche. When Louis was nine years old, his grandfather, Philip II, died, and his father became king, Louis VIII. Now, Louis VIII had the awesome nickname of Louis the Lion, but it would only be three years until Louis VIII died as well. So our Louis was crowned king at 12 years old, and his mother Blanche ruled as his regent. This was understandably a hard time for both Louis and his mother Blanche. But what made it even harder was the current political climate in France. The kings in France at this time did not look at all like their distant descendant, the absolute monarch, Louis XIV. At this time, the king did not have that kind of powerful central control that they would someday. This was the mid-1200s, and the feudal system was in its heyday. So there were knights and barons and dukes and counts, who all officially, at least, were under the king and owed him their allegiance. But in reality, each one had his own special interests and rivalries, and many of them could really hardly be trusted. They would make regular trouble in court, and sometimes they would openly war amongst themselves. In fact, they would war with each other just about as often as they would with some foreign power. And sometimes these nobles would openly revolt against their king if they did not get what they wanted. So with the old king dead and the new king only a child, many of the nobles hoped that they could control and manipulate the young Louis IX for their own ends. Queen Blanche was a foreign princess with few friends in court, so the nobles assumed she would be easily dominated well they could not be further from the truth. Queen Blanche proved to be incredibly capable and politically savvy. She could politically outmaneuver the nobles and did so on more than one occasion. She was going to make sure her son received his rightful throne with everything in her power and that he would receive all the honor that that entailed. The first step was having Louis crowned as soon as possible. So she snuck Louis away to Orleans, where kings had to be crowned, and had him crowned before anyone could stop her. Now some nobles were not too keen on this, and when Louis and Blanche returned to Paris, they tried to prevent them from entering. But Blanche had always made sure to be popular with the common people, and the common people loved her so much that when the nobles tried to bar their way, the townspeople of Paris lined the streets and escorted the queen regent and the young king themselves. While Blanche loved her son dearly and fiercely protected him, she did not spoil her son. She was very strict about his upbringing as an honorable Christian and was much more involved in his upbringing and education than was usual for a medieval queen. She made sure he had the best scholars to learn from, and he was given an education fitting his new role. She famously told him, I love you, my dear son, as much as a mother can love her child but I would rather see you dead at my feet than that you should ever commit a mortal sin. Louis would not forget her words. Apparently, her upbringing worked well, because Louis IX, as he was known, quickly became a serious and pious young king. His foremost concerns were his faith and ruling his realm. And this was impressive, because many young princes at the time were primarily concerned with hunting and jousting, the rough medieval equivalent to video games. Thanks to Blanche's love and devotion, Louis and his mother would remain close her entire life. And often, when Louis was pronouncing judgments or acting publicly, his mother would appear also nearby. Blanche probably deserves her own episode. She pulled off the impressive feat of navigating courtly medieval politics, which, as anyone who's ever watched Game of Thrones knows, is not easy to do. She also did it with for the most part, virtue and integrity. We see her commitment to justice in her strong opposition to anti-Semitism, for instance, something that was pretty rampant at the time. She was a strong guiding hand for her son, and when she gave power over to him, he was in a very good political position, thanks to her hard work. In 1234, Louis was 20 years old, and his mother helped him to be arranged to be married to Margaret of Provence. Now, political marriages did not often factor in love, but Margaret and Louis were well-suited for each other. Margaret was also a pious, serious Christian, and they both were lovers of reading and music, and Louis was happy to show her all he was trying to do in his kingdom. While Louis' and Margaret's marriage was a happy one, Blanche had a difficult time accepting the new queen. She was jealous of her son's time, especially since she had done so much work to get him where he was. In fact, she was so jealous that sometimes Louis and Margaret would have to sneak away in hallways to meet and post lookouts to warn if his mother approached. While there was never open hostility, there would always be some tension between Margaret and Blanche. But the young king had much bigger problems to worry about than his wife and mother getting along. Well, I don't know about bigger, but at least different. The incident trying to prevent him from entering Paris was not the last time the nobles would be a thorn in his side not by a long shot. In fact, not long after Louis's coming of age, one of his own counts, Hugh de Lézanne, I don't know if I'm saying that right at all, and the King of England, Henry III, allied together and openly made war against King Louis. Now, in a complicated piece of historical intrigue, the kings of England were both at the same time independent kings and also vassals of the French king. This was because they controlled some land in France, and so in that realm, they were dukes of France under the French king. But in the realm of England, they were totally politically independent. This weird political arrangement was a problem all the way through the 1100s and 1200s, and it wouldn't finally be solved until the conclusion of the Hundred Years' War in the middle of the 1400s. And that solution would be France, pushing English power totally off the continent. But that is still a long ways off for our friend Louis IX. So in 1242, the King of England, and this Count, took armies and began marching from the Count's lands in Aquitaine, that's the southwestern part of France, and invading other areas. So Louis had to raise an army as soon as he could, and the two armies met in front of the castle Taliborgue right by a very strategic river and bridge. The forces of Louis secured victory when a group of loyal knights sallied forth from the castle and broke the rebellious forces. Louis punished the rebels very severely, and signed a peace treaty with the English. Thankfully for Louis, he would never have to face a rebellion that serious again. But even when the young king was not fighting rebelling counts, he was busy in his kingdom. Ever since he was young, Louis had a heart for the poor and needy. Every night he invited over a hundred poor of Paris into his palace, and on holidays that number would be even bigger, and sometimes the king himself would serve the meals. Because of acts like this, Louis became known for his humility and his kindness to all people, great or small. He would even wash the feet of the poor on Monday, Thursday, and he encouraged his fellow nobles to do the same. At one point he asked his close friend, John de Joinville, if he would do it himself, to which John replied, God forbid it, sir, I will not wash the feet of those brutes. But Louis rebuked him, and told him that was a very poor answer, and that he should not despise his Lord Jesus' example. This is a good point to introduce John de Joinville himself, who is also an important player in this story. John wrote the primary biography of Louis IX, and as I mentioned before, was a close personal friend to him. Now, John is a unique biographer, in that he's really not much of a writer. He's a plain-spoken kind of a guy, and much more of a man of action than a man of letters. But in his old age, John took it upon himself to write down an account of Louis's life. And he was a good man for the job, since he knew him better than just about anyone else, and he would accompany Louis on most of his adventures. John was also humble enough to add his own failures into the story, For instance, that one we just heard comes from John's own account. John dearly loved his king. Now, Louis' generosity did not end with feeding the poor or washing their feet. He found ways to provide for all types of people, whether they were monks or nuns or elderly or widows or even prostitutes. He had a hospital built for the blind in Paris. He also created a home for women who'd been driven into prostitution, which he called the House of the Daughters of God. He also gave great gifts to the religious orders of monks and nuns, and he was chastised for his generous gifts by some, but he would reply, I would rather my extravagance should be almsgiving for the love of God than in the pomp and vainglory of this world. John was also committed to justice and good government. He once told his son, I pray you, win the love of the people of thy kingdom, For truly, I would rather a Scot should come out of Scotland and rule the people of the kingdom well and justly, than you should govern them ill-advisedly. Sounds a bit like his mother, doesn't he? Internationally, Louis tried to support Christians throughout the world. He helped provide for Christians in the Middle East, and he also helped provide for the Latin Emperor of Constantinople at the time. Now, how Constantinople got a Latin ruler is a fascinating story in its own right but it has to do with an awkward mix-up in the Fourth Crusade. Basically, the Western Crusaders missed the Holy Land and instead attacked the Greek Christians in Constantinople. It's pretty tragic, actually. But for our story, the important thing is that the ruler was so grateful that he gave Louis the crown of thorns, believed at the time to be the true crown of thorns that Jesus wore. After receiving it, Louis built the now famous Chapel of Saint-Chapelle, I actually was able to visit it once in high school, and I must say it truly is magnificent, even today. At home, Louis also tried very hard to reform the French legal system. He would often hear cases himself, and introduced some very crazy and innovative ideas for his time. For instance, he had the crazy idea of innocence until proven guilty, and ended the very bizarre practice of trials by ordeal. This meant it was no longer allowed to burn people to see if they were witches or not. And in cases between rich and poor, Louis always tried to be fair, and if necessary, he would err on the side of the poor. There was one instance in which a noble had three children hung for hunting rabbits on his property. When the king brought him to justice, the noble demanded that other nobles serve as his judges. But King Louis refused and put him before the ordinary judges. The judges sentenced the noble to death. Louis had pity on him, however, and instead of going through with the sentence, he had him charged a ridiculous amount of sum, taking a good portion of his wealth, to which Louis donated then to a charity. In 1244, when Louis was 30, he became very sick. So sick, in fact, that briefly his nurses thought he was dead. For several days, he was not able to speak. But once he regained his speech, the first thing he said was that he wanted to take up the cross. In medieval terms, that meant something pretty radical. It meant he was going to go on a crusade. Now, crusading had been happening at this point for almost 150 years. And ever since the first crusade in the 1090s, there was a great romance and adventure around it. While we might see them today as pretty despicable, and there's good reasons to think that, to most of Europe at the time, they were a combination of the chance for adventure, fighting for a good cause, and possibly winning some loot or land. There was nothing not to like. Louis himself did it mostly out of thankfulness for his recovery. He thought it was a way that he could show his gratitude to God. But preparation for this crusade took several years, and during that time, Louis continued in his quest to bring justice into his realm. There's one story during this time of a priest who was accused of killing three men. The three men were notorious robbers and thugs, and they had robbed and mugged the area often, and they also happened to beat this local priest. Well, the priest got fed up with this, and he found a crossbow and a sword and lied in wait for them. When they passed, he ambushed them. He shot the first, and then chased down the other two. And after he killed them, he turned himself in to the local judge, who brought him before the king. Louis told the man this, Your prowess has lost you, your priesthood. And for your prowess, I retain you in my pay, and you shall accompany me overseas. And I deal thus with you, in order that my followers may see that I will not uphold in them any of their wickedness. As we will see, this was both an act of mercy and also a punishment. There was a great honor to go on the Crusades with the king, but there was also the very real possibility that this would be a death sentence. While many of the Crusades were carried out quite despicably, especially some of the early ones, Louis certainly had high ideals. He had heard of the mistreatment of Christians in the Middle East, and he longed to bring peace and justice to that area. So he began to prepare for that expedition. He had nobles swear allegiance to his sons, who would remain behind while he was gone, and while he was gone, his mother, still living, would rule in his stead. Queen Blanche, along with many other nobles, were not happy about Louis's decision, however, and they protested as much as they could, and they had good reason to. Louis was ruling well and justly, and how often do kings like that come around? Why risk it all? But Louis was convinced, and he, and some of his family, and his friend John, and about 15,000 troops set sail for Egypt. Now the dynamics of the Middle East had changed a lot since the First Crusade, which happened over a hundred years before this. In the 1100s, a famous Muslim general named Saladin had reconquered a lot of the crusaders' land that they'd gotten from the first crusade. But now in the 1200s, there was a new player on the field. The Mongols. Yes, this is also the time of Genghis Khan, and amazingly his forces made it all the way to modern-day Israel, which is pretty wild to me. And because the Mongols had conquered a lot of Muslim power in Persia... The center of Islamic power was now in Egypt. So Louis figured that if he could knock out Egypt, the Holy Land could be set for Christian rule once again. Louis planned to land near the port city of Damietta and capture it, and then quickly move further inland to take the capital, Cairo. Another crusader force from Palestine would march south and west and attack Egypt's eastern side. It seemed like a good plan. Unfortunately for Louis, it failed utterly. Louis lost the element of surprise as the Nile flooded and halted his army's advance for months. Then the other branch of the attack was defeated before they could even arrive. And when Louis finally did advance, progress was slow. They laid siege to the city of Menzora, which proved to be a disaster, inflicting much worse damage on the crusaders besieging than on the inhabitants who were being besieged. Hunger and disease were widespread, and Muslim assassins would wait on the edge of the crusader camp and listen to the jingle of the crusaders' armor as the sentries rode past. Then at night they would sneak into camp and kill the hapless soldiers. When Louis and his forces finally tried to retreat back to Damietta, they were utterly defeated in battle, and Louis and what was left of his army was captured. It was a complete disaster. Any gains were lost, and now France's king was a prisoner. To make matters worse, Louis received another devastating blow. While he was captured, he heard the news that his mother had died while he was away. To free Louis, a huge ransom had to be paid by France. This is one of those instances when the amount was, literally, a king's ransom. The amount was astronomical, something close to a year of revenue for the crown. And Louis and the remnants of his army then made their way through Palestine to the only Christian-controlled port left, Acre. There Louis sailed, I'm sure a little more humbly, back to France. His experience in the Holy Land changed him, but it did not dampen his resolve to be a good king. After his crusade, he wore even more modest clothing than before, refusing most furs and fine clothes. Some even say that he slept on a tough wooden bed for the rest of his life. But there was still much to do in France, and Louis quickly returned to his more civilian work. His greatest endeavor was the complete reform of the French legal system. He also issued his famous Great Ordinance. This ordinance was an effort to crack down on corruption of royal officials. It included forbidding any sort of gifts or bribery to any official or their close relatives. It also forbade officials from buying more land in areas nearby where they served. Louis also tried to stop corruption in the church. The practice of simony, which, remember, is buying and selling church offices, was illegal and had been for a while. But that didn't stop it from happening often. Louis rooted out these offenders as much as he could, and in general tried to protect the genuine clergy as well as he could. In 1257, Robert Sorbonne, a priest and friend of Louis proposed the idea of a college for poor students in Paris. Louis agreed with this idea and gave him all the funding he needed. The college became known as Sorbonne and became the theological branch of University of Paris. It was at this college where people like Bonaventure, Thomas Aquinas, and countless other famous theologians would study. Internationally, Louis still had great prestige, even after his crusading debacle, rulers across Europe would seek him as a mediator. In fact, he was so respected that his old foe, King Henry of England, sought Louis to be a mediator between him and his nobles. Louis agreed, so a large group of English nobility traveled to Amiens to hear his judgments. And Louis proved to be a good judge, sometimes ruling in favor of Henry and sometimes the nobles. All the parties respected his decisions and for the most part, left satisfied. In Louis's personal life, he was by all accounts very pleasant. He enjoyed wine and good company, but despised drunkenness and lewdness. He said himself, nothing beats a free and friendly conversation. He also always tried to avoid contradicting or outright disagreeing with people if he could help it. As he told his friend John, he would do this, and I quote, provided there would be no blame nor harm to myself in letting it pass, for hard words provoke quarrels that are the death of thousands. And I've found that's pretty good advice in my own life, though usually there aren't thousands of lives hanging in the balance because of it. Now, sadly for king and country, Louis could not resist the call to crusade a second time. So in 1267 he decided he would try again to take back the Holy Land. Once again, many people tried to dissuade him for his decision, including his close friend, John de Joinville. John had been on Louis's first crusade, and he believed it would be just as disastrous a second time. He urged the king to think first of France and his duty there, but Louis had made up his mind. In 1270, Louis left France, and he set sail to North Africa. He would never see France again. His expedition landed in Tunis, and immediately disease swept through the army. Louis and his two sons were among those who fell ill. Louis did not have the strength to make it through it. On August 25th, he died, and his last words were reportedly, Lord, I will enter into your house. I will adore your holy temple and will give glory to your name. Into your hands I commend my soul. Louis was only 56 years old and it was certainly a tragedy that he died so young. He had worked hard to make France a strong and, most importantly, a good nation. But, as his crusading spirit showed, he certainly was still a man of his time, and he shared in many of the same shortcomings that most of the people in the Middle Ages did. But while this may be true, Louis was certainly one of the best men of his time which is why he is one of those few European monarchs to be sainted. His philosophy and ruling in life was simple. Love God, do justice, and serve the poor. One thing I am struck by is that St. Louis was someone that you honestly would want to sit down and share a beer with. He was someone who could be humble and courageous, and he was a king that was honestly trying his best to be a good Christian and a good ruler. Like I said, he's certainly the kind of ruler that I think anyone would be lucky to live under. So that's all I have for St. Louis. I hope you enjoyed learning about him as much as I did. Now, I haven't totally decided on what the next episode will be. It will either be about one of the first professional writers in the Middle Ages, a woman named Christine de Pizan, or about a medieval composer and a poet. Named Guillaume de Marchaud. And that depends if I can get a special guest for that episode or not. So, stay tuned to find out. In the meantime, please check out the website, FaithfulForBears.com, and the Facebook page, and give it a like if you haven't yet. Also, please do me the big favor of writing a little review on iTunes or Stitcher. And, as always, tell a friend. I'm Eric Lawson, and thanks for listening.